where we're going, we don't need roads. Carpe diem, seize the day, boys. Just when I thought I was out, they pull me back in. Good morning, Vietnam! I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore! They call it a royale with cheese. I have always depended on the kindness of strangers. You've got to ask yourself one question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? Shaken, not stirred. They called me Mr. Tibbs. I'll have what she's having. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. You make me want to be a better man. I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. Go ahead. Make my day. You can't handle the truth. I'm walking here. I'm walking here. May the force be with you. To infinity and beyond. They're here. Are you talking to me? Are you talking to me? Yes, we are, because this is the greatest movie of all time podcast. This show may contain explicit language and or spoilers. Welcome to the greatest movie of all time podcast. I'm your host, Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight we are reviewing the uh, 1959 classic, North by Northwest, uh, directed and... uh, or directed by Alfred Hitchcock, starring um, Cary Grant, Eva Marie Saint, and James Mason. Uh, for those who are unfamiliar with the film, um, the plot synopsis off of IMDb, Madison Avenue advertising man Roger Thornhill, played by Cary Grant, finds himself thrust into the world of spies when he is mistaken for a man by the name of George Kaplan. Foreign spy Philip Van Damme, played by James Mason, and his henchman Leonard, played by Martin Landau, uh, try to eliminate him, but when Thornhill tries to make sense of the case, he is framed for murder. Now on the run from the police, he manages to board the 20th Century Limited bound for Chicago, where he meets a beautiful blonde, Eve Kendall, played by Eva Marie Saint, who helps him to evade the authorities. His world is turned upside down yet again when he learns that Eve isn't the innocent bystander he thought she was. Not as all as it seems, however, leading to a dramatic... Uh, ending that still lives in some bit of uh, uh, cinematography classicness. So, uh, from there, um, my history with this film is simply that uh, you guys have been showing me Alfred Hitchcock films since probably uh, I was about 10. Um, I don't think this was my first one. I think my first introduction was Rear Window, which we'll eventually get to at a later date. Um, But, um, this is by far um, Cary Grant's biggest role in an Alfred Hitchcock film. Uh, what's your personal history with it? Well, I started watching Hitchcock films because when they would come on, my dad would always have them on, so I'd sit and watch them with him. <clears throat> my dad's always been the big movie buff when I was a kid, so that's how I was exposed to different films and such. And... Through the years, I would watch more and more of them, and as they started becoming available on VHS, and then uh, subsequently on DVD, um, I got to 
see a lot of the films that I hadn't seen previously. North by Northwest, I think, was my first uh, Hitchcock film. Uh, I want to say I saw it when I was like a junior or a freshman or a sophomore in high school, and uh, it had a big impact on me because uh, the the storyline was intriguing. Cary Grant was so debonair. Uh, it was just a very well done movie, and as a result, it kind of hooked me. And I continued. I watched Rear Window later on. I watched, uh, and you say this was his biggest role. He was in another uh, film from, I believe it was 1944, Notorious, with Ingrid Bergman. Well, he was also in To Catch a Thief, but this is his Correct. most notable Hitchcock movie. Correct. And and uh, anyway, um, and then I, I subsequently saw some of the earlier stuff when I was in college um, many years ago. They used to have Friday night movie nights, and so they would uh, show movies in the uh, uh, lecture hall in the science building, and you could go. And I remember watching what, to some extent, this film was based on, called Saboteur, with, um, uh, boy, I'm, um, Robert Cummings. So, um, for... Uh... I guess we'll move just quickly into um, impressions of the film. Just some things off the top. Um, you know, this is probably my favorite Hitchcock film. It's by far what I think to be um, his lightest and probably most fun uh, movie that I can think of. Um, adventure and intrigue, but um, the good guys and the bad guys, there's not a lot of, like, um, sheer violence. There's not a lot of... Um, kind of horror thrill. This is um, probably the lightest of his movies. Uh, I'll also say, um, I forgot how instantly you're thrust into this story. Um, there's maybe a little, or I don't know, two minutes worth of uh, bit part of the introduction where he's talking to his secretary, then he gets into a cab, and then automatically you're in the restaurant, uh, the signature moment happens where he's mistaken as Kaplan and all you're off to the races. You're maybe five minutes max into the film and it just kicks off. Yes, it does. And the interesting thing about this is, is that Hitchcock worked on this script for seven years. He came up with the original premise of it and his whole concept was, in fact, the working title of this uh, film was originally In Lincoln's Nose. Okay, but working titles have been, you know, weird for a long time. I mean, the famously, the working title of uh, Return of the Jedi was Blue Harvest. So, you know, you have all these weird things uh, potentially but, all over the place. But that's, that's exact. But the point being is, is that he came up with the concept of doing a chase scene across Mount Rushmore. And that he devised a script. In fact, you think about it. You know, the, the Hitchcock always called the the turning point, the thing that they're chasing, the, the MacGuffin. And in this particular case, you don't even know what it is. In or when he's talking, or when uh, Cary Grant is talking with the professor and learning about how this whole operation is, he asks, what is he doing? And he's like, oh, a dealer in government secrets, let's say. 
what exactly Van Damme is doing and how he's doing it is not even that relevant. It's just a matter of he's doing it, and this is just the vehicle by which to propel this ordinary man into the world of espionage and to have him rise above uh, to eventually save the day and save the girl. Uh, the other thing I will um, put on this is it has some of the best wide shots of the era that I can think of. Um, the amount of crowd work when they go into the UN building or they're in the restaurant next to Mount Rushmore and they have these like crowd scenes and somebody's just walking through the middle of the restaurant, but it's a wide shot and just kind of gives you a surveyor's view. Uh, I think some of those are just absolutely incredible to look at. Hitchcock sure made use of the whole uh, screen at that time, which a lot of other directors had not. Most most films, even in that time frame, when they were, so to speak, serious films, were still being shot in black and white. High Noon, even into the 60s with um, Otto Preminger's films were being shot in black and white. And, and here we've got Hitchcock using color and using it to the utmost ability. Now, um, I, I don't have as much of a history on some of this, and I don't know how prevalent it was. We kind of attribute some of the spy era uh, of movies and action thrillers to kind of uh, James Bond, but that was three years after this. Um, this was 59. Dr. No didn't come out till 62. We'll eventually be getting onto those probably around... Um, when the new Bond film comes out, although that's now been delayed due uh, to uh, uh, the world health crisis. But, um, you know, as it is, um, it kind of plays up some of the stereotypes that we associate with modern spy thrillers. I mean, when um, they made a joke of it in Austin Powers, all the uh, ridiculous and elaborate ways in which Dr. Evil tries to kill Austin Powers... And it just is um, reflecting on the fact of all the uh, ridiculous ways villains over the years tried to kill James Bond. But um, you go back to the scene early on in this movie where Cary Grant, they get him drunk, then they try and put him in a car and drive him off of a cliff. Like, why go to all this elaborate scheme when you pulled him out of nowhere and you could have, if you're a real spy, dumped the body somewhere, just shoot him. I mean, the fact that you allow any of the rest of this to take off seems kind of asinine to me. Well, yeah, but there is some level of believability to it, and that is a characteristic of Hitchcock. It's not completely oh. unbelievable. Well, okay, that part is um, more believable than yet the other one, which is the more famous scene. Why do you get him out into the middle of nowhere to... Crop duster try and kill him. And furthermore, what crop duster has a mounted gun? And why didn't they use it more often? They just try and fly at him. Shoot him! Like, this shouldn't be that difficult. But it sets up some of the most, like, um, epic set pieces in Hitchcock's career. Hitchcock was all about the visual. And so these were opportunities for him to have visual appearances. And, and the, the, the visual aspect of the film. In fact, 
<clears throat> uh, James Mason said after he finished this, he loved Hitchcock and he loved his films, but he hated working for him because he felt like he was nothing more than a prop. Uh, I just, you know, the other part of this that um, just kind of got to me, um, this is supposed to be part of the uh, Cold War and how all of this is going, and you kind of already mentioned this, but it has almost no exposition as to who um, Van Damme is and what, you know, everything is going on. It's just kind of like uh, happenstance to what actually is going on. It's setting up action set piece after action set piece, and ultimately, you know, you watch some of the more modern movies of spy thrillers and whatever else, the security for 1959 that he could just, you know, run the gate at the uh, train station, get in and um, nobody's able to really track him down and he's able to almost freely move about the country. It speaks to how ridiculous the security's come in 60 years. Well, and it wasn't that far off <clears throat> from the way it was. I still remember security. I mean, it was nothing. You could, you know... You were at the airport, you could walk right to the gate and see people off. Well, yeah, so. I even remember that era. That was uh, different from 9-11, um, but I'm just saying the amount of um, security personnel that you would think, he kills a guy in the UN, he's on the front of the newspapers, you'd think there would be some massive manhunt on for him, and yet he's able to freely move about the country up until the point where he tries to turn himself in during the whole auction scene. Well, how long did it take the FBI to get J or John Dillinger? I mean, I don't took, know. It took but... it took quite a while. Eh, and, okay, you know, but it wasn't like Dillinger was hiding that much. He was in plain okay, view. but that that's like the gangsters. They did they had to pin something there. Gary Grant seen with the knife on uh, a photograph. Dillinger shot a guard escaping from prison. It wasn't like they didn't have him already, you know, he was on the lam as public enemy number one, and it still took him months. So, right. you know, it's a different time. The level of security, the type of, of police work, all the rest of that that's available is much different than it is now. All right. Do you have any other thoughts, or should we just jump right into the categories? Well, I just wanted to, I, I had, I've read... Uh, biographies of Hitchcock and such. And I just wanted to mention a couple of things, which is, like I said, it took him seven years of working on this uh, script to get it going. He was working on it at about the same time he was doing Vertigo. Uh, in fact, originally, because James Stewart was going to, was doing Vertigo, Stewart thought he was going to be uh, playing Thornhill. And uh, how that came about that he didn't, and it ended up being Cary Grant, is something that's kind of a mystery because right up until filming started, uh, Stewart thought he was going to be Thornhill, but that changed. And then uh, the other thing is, is that in order to secure the footage, they had to do photographs and some camera work. And what they would, they tried to get the UN to allow them to film in there. UN would not. The only thing the UN would do is allow them to take still photos. So they recreated the scene in the UN where he meets up with uh, or with uh, uh, Mr. Townsend. Townsend, yes, excuse me. 
Um, Mount Rushmore, the same thing. In order to use Mount Rushmore and to have footage of Mount Rushmore, the Park Service said that there should be no defamation. Um, the, the, the monument itself is, uh, what is it, the Birth of Freedom or something is the name of it. <clears throat> they did not want to have any death or violence or gunplay or anything associated with the monument. So they let him come in and Hitchcock handed a reporter a, a, a napkin in which he had dotted lines drawn as to where the chase scenes were going to happen on top of the monument. So the Park Service pulled the rights to have <clears throat> them do filming on top, So, but they had enough background and measurements that they were able to recreate a fake uh, paper mache or plaster monument by which the scenes were filmed ultimately. But the Park Service was very upset that uh, the chase, final chase scene, was to have taken place on the monument itself. So... <laughs> All right. Um, well, without further ado, uh, first category up, as usual, is Legacy. Um, I think this film probably lives on a little bit more in its subsequent um, historical legacy than it did at the time. Um, it was a big film, but it was not necessarily um, recognized as a top film, and it's only gotten more popular with time kind of like some of Hitchcock's other movies that have slowly moved up their um, path on the uh, greatest films of all time list. Um, and uh, I also, as I previously mentioned, I think this does give a bit of a set piece for some of um, the spy thriller-esque um, notion of things and uh, that moving forward as far as the action sequences and uh, the big masterful set pieces and just kind of the action thriller uh, genre, this was um, kind of, uh, I don't know if it was uh, outside of the first Western, because like Westerns were doing action thriller type of stuff, but um, they weren't doing this type of thing that was kind of more modern, that were present. Well, you can go back and um, the, the film, I, I believe, I'm trying to remember if it was Notorious or uh, Suspicion, both World War II era Hitchcock films, one of them, I want to say it's notorious, is that they're hiding, uh, Claude Rains is hiding diamonds in wine bottles because he's an, uh, a secret agent and he's using the, the diamonds in order to um, pay off informants. So these, these are not the first ones. Hitchcock did these type of spy thrillers going back to the days when he was in England. Um, doing these types of films. And so it's not unusual. This is more but, of the modern one, but the interesting thing about this is, is you could take this script <laughs> and film it today and it would fit because there's no uh, Russians or Soviets or uh, Chinese or um, North Korean, whoever you would want to say is the United States' enemy. There's nothing in there that prevents it. This could be anybody. And it could be any situation whatsoever. Well, I, while I might agree, it does, um, from some of his earlier films, and you mentioned Saboteur, which I thought was a lower version of this film, um, the, the set pieces are bigger 
and more grand, and um, they are just uh, bigger than anything that he really was doing. Some of his later films just had bigger uh, mastery of the craft type of situations, and I look at it similarly to um, another British film director, more modern, you know, you look at the progression of somebody like Christopher Nolan, who um, did small-time kind of independent films, and it's kind of steadily grown. When he first got his first big-budget films with the Batman films, his stunts kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And so until now, which uh, Tenet is supposed to come out this summer, um, that's going to be a $250 or $300, or $300 million movie with yeah. some of the biggest set pieces that we have at this point. Uh, what I would just say is, is that, you know, the storyline to me was not um, the most unique thing he'd done, but his set pieces had become more grand as a result. And so this gets a little bit higher on the arc where, you know, he was one of the ones to do something like a crop duster um, trying to chase Cary Grant down in a cornfield type of situation or... Um, the stuff at Rushmore or any of these other pieces. Yeah. Well, it, it, it has more to do with the visual effects and the use of specific props and such. Um, you know, I mean, Hitchcock took the train through Chicago and, you know, from New York and went up through into, or through South Dakota and he would watch for visuals and scenes and, and ideas while he was doing this. So, he, as he said, he always tried to... Or there were several movies that he had done that he really liked early in his career that he rewrote and tried to do again later on in his career simply because he knew so much more about filmmaking when he was in his, uh, in his 50s than when he was in his 30s. And that's, you know, to be expected and quite fair. Um, I will, um, you know, just generally mention that uh, this was not even nominated for um, Best Picture at the time. It didn't get any acting not accolades or even director, which famously Hitchcock never won Best Director at the Oscars. Um, and he was very rarely nominated, if, if at all. Um, but... This is kind of, it's been um, part of the National Film Registry for 25 years, and um, it still gets accolades up and down for a year in which um, it probably should have been at least in the top five. Well, you have to understand that there is a certain aspect of Hollywood in that late 1950s that turned their nose up at Hitchcock. For the simple reason was as Hitchcock crossed over and did television. And he did Alfred Hitchcock Presents, which was nothing more than Hitchcock using his name and his style in order to make a few extra bucks on the side hosting a TV show. And so Hollywood, taking itself way too seriously as it often does, simply decided that, well, if you're not going to take yourself seriously, we aren't either. So, you know, just for the standpoint that um, the recognition score is going to be down by comparison to some other things. Uh, I would probably put the legacy score a little bit higher just because this has kind of um, lived on at least a little bit better than it did at the time. Correct. That so I would put this probably about a nine on the legacy scale. What would you suggest? That's a good number. All right. 
So moving on, um, then we've got novelty. Uh, again, I would say this, these are some of the most novel set pieces of the time and that, um, uh, you know, there weren't a whole lot of, um, big sequences like this really being done at this point. Um, outside of that, I don't know if this is wholly separable from some of Hitchcock's other films, um, especially ones that are going to be higher on the list and kind of the action sequencing and, um, the chase notion, I mean, he is an auteur, but I don't know if it lives in some of the, the novelty other than some of these bigger set pieces. Yes, I, I, yeah, I guess I would say, I mean, he went out of his way to find pieces that said America and tried to, he, he loved the concept of taking average American things and twisting them just so that they were dark. Well, and, but again, I don't know if that rates, you know, huge on my novelty scale. I don't think this in any way, like, a 10 for me on this particular thing is, did it change movie history, essentially? Or how we made movies, we looked at them, something to that effect. I mean, that's where you're going to get a high novelty score degree. Um, yes, you know, that does carry over a little bit into significance or impact, but it's um, not just its subject material that could be carried over to significance or impact, but rather, you know, how it was made and what it brought to the table that was either new or uh, exciting fresh. Well, from a novelty standpoint, I think what it did do is it opened up the possibility that even the most grandio or grandiose uh, scenes in America could be ultimately a movie script or a movie scene basis. So you could film on Mount Rushmore, you could film um, in downtown Chicago, you could film on the Golden Gate Bridge, you could film... Um, you know, well, the I'm, Golden Gate Bridge, for you know, listeners, is not part of this movie. Um, they only carry on in New York on a train to Chicago, in Chicago, and then in Rapid City, South Dakota, on Mount Rushmore. I'm just using that because it is in another classic Hitchcock film, Vertigo. Okay, but that's... But yeah, but it, it isn't really. It's seen in there. Okay, it's seen in there, but it's but not I, a part of the movie. Not in the same way that he used the Statue of Liberty in a completely different film. Yes, yeah, Saboteur, the final scene is on the Statue of Liberty. So, um, uh, for me, this maybe you know, maybe I'm um, being a little rough, but I think, I, I don't know if I could give it above a six. I think I'm going to go with a five on novelty. I'd go six. So, I'll comfortably compromise on six instead of going the half on the average but now classicness you know is there anything that has aged poorly in this um other than just some of the pieces that i thought um you know uh you don't really have the same notion of the madison avenue advertising executive um there were a couple of things like only being a $2 fine for drunk driving, which, 
you know, in today's terms is only 1773 in inflation adjustment. Yeah. You know, we're obviously much harsher, but, you know, those are small nitpicks here and there that uh, I don't really have too much. Um, you'd probably update it slightly with a few tweaks, but I going back to what you said earlier, you probably could still make this movie in modern times just completely redone, but, you know, uh, with the obvious more uh, modern flair for it. Yeah. So as far as that goes, you know, it's classicness or ability. Uh, I would probably put it a little bit higher. I don't know if I could put it completely at the, the top, but, um, you know, a pretty decent. I was going to go an eight. Um, like I said, the, the only things I had were kind of nitpicky um, as far as its its ability to transfer time ability. Some of it has to do with a little bit of early era, so it does get a little bit of a downgrade. So maybe that favors more modern films a little bit, but um, I would probably go an eight. Okay, well, I, I'd still think seven. All right, so we'll go with the 7.5 on that, um, just for general peace. So significance or impact, uh, again, this goes back to the kind of novelty um, thing. Um, the set pieces did kind of uh, adjust things overall, um, and... Um, you know, make it so that uh, you had uh, people taking a few more um, chances. The 60s was kind of a different era of film, and you had uh, a lot more chase sequences, a lot more um, action thriller-esque uh, stuff. You know, notably, we already mentioned James Bond. He kind of got into a bunch of different car chases in the uh, 60s and 70s, um, you know, one with a boat race, some of those pieces, and um, you know, like Smokey and the Bandit type of situation was after that but um all of those have kind of a tale from um some of the set pieces done on this sure i don't think it was you know highly novel some of it but you know that you no. had filmmakers taking bigger and bigger risks on some of the action sequencing that they did yeah i don't see that this was that that uh had much significance as far as overall this this the type of filming or how they did it or how it was performed so again i think i would probably have to put it around a five and i i'm starting to be notice that since we did our first episode you know i'm even kind of coming around to different aspects of this and just um simply trying to look at it a little bit more nitpicky so so we're comfortable with a five, or did you have a yeah, different? Yeah, no, okay. that's fine. Um, just for you know, listeners, uh, we do apologize a little bit. Uh, Dana's dealing with a cold this week, um, so he's a little bit hoarse, and uh, you might have heard a cough a little bit earlier. We don't have uh, some of the great technology on you know the board for uh, uh, the cough button or anything. Yes, I apologize. Eh. Too much burning the candle at both ends. Eh, it happens. So, and uh, the last one as far as the subjective score pieces, uh, rewatchability. Uh, I'm, I thought about this a little bit more this week um, in relation to how we did it last week. Um, for me, the pinnacle of rewatchability, and I've tried to place this with all of uh, the categories. I have a particular film or something in mind when I come to uh, some of these categories and how they stack up. You know, what would be the ideal 10 so that way I can kind of, like, force it off. But rewatchability. 
you know, have you watched this film often? Um, do you keep coming back to it? Now, the pinnacle for 10 for me is going to be, is this a movie that no or that I can put on literally at any time of the year, at any day, and enjoy what I'm watching? And, um, and I probably watch this film, you know, pretty often. You know, for me, that's usually once every three to six months sometimes, but like that, oh yeah, this is on streaming or whatever else, and okay, I need something light. This is something I'm going to come back to a lot. Yeah, my my theory on this is simple. I work a lot, and I work late a lot. And if I come home at uh, 9 o'clock, and I have about an hour before, I want to try and start winding down and getting to bed. So and I just need some downtime, I'm thumbing through the on the remote to a movie, and a movie comes on that I consider rewatchable. If I can just pick it up in the middle and just watch it because it's just like comfort. It to me a certain film is like macaroni and cheese. It's just a comfort food. Sure, this and that's kind of what I meant. I this is by far the most rewatchable for me personally of Hitchcock's films. Um, probably, um, just slightly behind or ahead of, um, rear window. And then, um, you know, third, I would have at a distance, probably vertigo. Vertigo is not one that I, I return to a lot, but it is one that I've watched multiple times, you know, rear window and North by Northwest are ones I've visited, you know, multiple different occasions. This is one where you don't have to do a lot of depth thinking. I mean, it's just action, and you're watching it unfold. Yeah, I, I could agree with that. And so, like I said, you know, you get some of the lighter aspects of things. Um, so, for me, the rewatch, but I mean, it's not a movie that I'm seeking out or that, you know, I'm actively doing, but it's going to be a little bit higher on that one. So, I would put it somewhere between a 7 and an 8 on the rewatchability scale. 8. All right, I can I can go with a heavy eight, and make that okay. So just uh, for um, notable impact uh, on some of the other categories, so audience score, uh, it has a ninety four percent on Rotten Tomatoes for the audience score, uh, giving it nine point four points, and then recognition. Uh, I mentioned before um, that uh, it was nominated for three Academy Awards at the time. Um, and uh, those well, were one best picture that year. Well, we will get to that. I, I that sets up a different question that we have as part of this. Um, best film editing, best art direction, um, set or set decoration, and best original screenplay. And the most notable part of this, which it seems a little bit shocking to me, because I think the script is a bit light, to be quite honest, is uh, the screenplay has actually gotten more accolades than almost anything else on the film. So, um, now that being said, not, it didn't win any of the awards, but again, we try and give a little bit of a benefit to the doubt, you know, if you're nominated, you're one of the best films of that year, at least in that particular category. Um, so it was not up for best picture, so it doesn't get any of, uh, those extra bonus points like, uh, Raiders did last week, but, uh, it is on the, uh, or on, I think almost all of the, uh, major lists of the best film of all time that we use as part of that. So it gets an additional four points for a total of seven in the recognition category. 
So if uh, with the uh, 9.4 for audience score and then the 7 for recognition, uh, that brings it to a total of 51.9. Um, for context, uh, I think we had uh, 73.35 for Raiders of the Lost Ark last week. So this would be put actually very significantly behind that. Now, it did get a little bit more on the recognition uh, score, which gave it an additional nine points in this particular um, situation that does um, put it behind on that. So we may have to you know, readjust some of the weighting at parts of this as far as the scientific background. But um, the other aspect is, is I think we were a little bit more... Um, nitpicky on some of this in how we adjust so we may have to revisit um certain films later on the problem with this film is 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 simple which is the film itself does not have any problems it's just that when you're looking at the body of work of alfred hitchcock and you consider all of the films you have to compare it to rear window you have to compare it to vertigo the birds psycho psycho and you realize that even though this is a good film, and if not a great film, it's not even close to his best film. Hey, well, I mean, that kind of leads into some of the next piece of this, which is, uh, you know, the best performance uh, situation. But um, I, I guess that's part of it. I try and weight the movie against itself. Uh, I mean, we were trying to uh, weight Spielberg's movies against itself, as far as like impact and legacy and some of those things last week. And we have kind of limited um, some of the, the overall uh, bringing in some of the additional outside stuff that we did last week. But, um, you know, as, as far as it goes, yes. Now, that being said, uh, and I've mentioned this probably about three or four times now, it's Cary Grant's most notable film as, uh, or with, um, Alfred Hitchcock. Um, it's only one of two movies that I can remember Eva Marie Saint being in. Uh, I think she gave a better performance than the other, but I mean, two movies that I at least know her for, and they're both um, high cl on the classic list. Um, the other being On the Waterfront with Marlon Brando from 54. But um, And then this is the only movie that I remember James Mason really being in. But then again, I haven't watched some of his Western work where I think he was a little bit more notable. Correct. <clears throat> well, and James, yeah, as I said, James Mason really loved Hitchcock as far as his films, but he did not care for, uh, he didn't care to work with him because he hmm. felt he was I'm a prop. Sure. So, um, you know, I guess for overall performance, um, I either go with Cary Grant or James Mason, just personally. Um, who would you pick between those two? I don't think James Mason had anything in this film that had to stretch him at all. And Cary Grant had some subtleties that he had to perform. He had to go between being the love sick guy to the guy who's, you know, the jilted lover to back again to the protector. I think his was a little more nuanced. Mason was just, you know, there wasn't much there for him to work from. Actually, if I had to pick anybody's performances of being something that was notoriety or that had some level of notoriety, I think Martin Landau did a pretty good job 
uh, in a very minor role. Of course, this was uh, before he went on to star in Mission Impossible in the 60s and then had a resurgence in his career with Academy Award nominations and uh, uh, Best Supporting Actor yeah, I, uh, in the 80s. I would tend to agree with that. I, I find Landau to be probably the um, more menacing of the villains. Um, you know, and he's got very small bit parts as part of this, but even at the end, he's kind of the uh, backdrop and the, the guy who is there at the end trying to push Cary Grant off of Rushmore. So I, I could see with that. So you'd nominate Landau or... I guess we could go with a tie for either Cary Grant or Landau. So you have to remember, when you're talking about uh, villains... It was, or I heard somebody comment once that the great one of the great movie villains of all time was Fred McMurray, because Fred McMurray looked like just an average nice guy, but there was just something about him that he could portray being just a villain. Well, and, you know, I think John Lithgow has the same characteristics. Yes, I would definitely give that, um, and and it's what makes them believable as villains because it's not like, you know, it, it it's. To use the uh, Jethro Tull, you know, Aqualung is not hanging around the parks. The people who are doing the crimes to children don't look like that. They're much more nemesing because they look like average people. Well, okay, bringing in a rather old reference. Although, to be fine, the, I mean, this that was probably 15 yeah, years old. after this. So, anyway, um, best scene for you? The climactic scene on Mount Rushmore was really the key one. Although, um, um, I do enjoy um, the scene in Grand Central Station I thought was fun was when they're all trying to find the red caps. Well, that's actually in Chicago. Grand or, Central is before that. Yeah, but. that's in Chicago. So, um, personally for me, I mean, I have a couple of nominees. Um you know, the crop duster scene is iconic um, and is probably more notable than the, the Rushmore scene overall as far as, like, uh, cinema history. Um, but So, I mean, you got to probably put that one high up on the list, although I'll probably save that for indelible moment um, scenario. Um, but uh, for me, uh, the best scene was the auction house. Just because yeah. of, you know, he... Uh, all the work he does to get to that point uh, of confronting it and you finally have everything kind of revealed and then the ingenuity he takes to try and get himself out of that situation. Now, interestingly, that originally when Hitchcock was in the development of this, he had written a scene with his wife Alma and the scene was supposed to take place in Detroit. And the scene was Thornhill and somebody walking along an assembly line in Detroit as they're building a car behind them. And what ends up happening is, is um, they just keep building the car. And at the very last minute, the car is seen and, um, and it's finished. And then the door opens and a body falls out. Okay. And so Hitchcock loved this concept, and he tried repeatedly to figure out a way to interweave it into the story. 
but couldn't do it, so they ended up scrapping it as a scene. So Thornhill never ends up going to Detroit. Okay. Um, but yeah, the auction house is my my vote for best scene. Okay. I I still like the the final chase. I do enjoy too the the scene on the train. Because of the uh, rules about uh, implying sex in the films, Hitchcock gets away with it by having doing the panoramic view of the train going into a tunnel. Okay, that's the end, but there's so much innuendo between the two it of them. It happens on multiple, there's multiple times that that happens in the film. I only remember it being the one time, to be quite honest. Nope. But I know that there's At least a ton twice. of... Okay, well, regardless... Anyway, um, so comes to best line, um, just uh, for uh, a couple of them that I had um, as potential nominees. There's actually some pretty good writing as far as the quips go um, on some of this. Um, in advertising, there's no such thing as a lie, only expedient exaggeration. Early on in the film, talking to his secretary... Um, now, what can a man do with his clothes off for 20 minutes? Couldn't he have taken an hour? You could always take a cold shower. Correct. That, that to me, you know, that kind of implies all of the innuendo that was going on. And then I know for you, because it's only the line you've quoted back to me, probably, you know, three dozen times over the course of my lifetime, has everyone, or excuse me, has anyone ever told you that you overplay your various roles rather severely, Mr. Kaplan? First, you're the outraged Madison Avenue man who claims he's been mistaken for someone else. Then you play the fugitive from justice, supposedly trying to clear his name of a crime he knows he didn't commit. And now, you play the peevish lover stung by jealousy and betrayal. It seems to me you fellows could stand a little less training from the FBI and a little bit more from the actor's studio. Oh, and it... And the lines in and of itself do not do it justice. It's the James Mason accent with the inflection in his voice that just makes that pop from the movie. Well, I'm not going to be able to get either Colbert or uh, Bill Hader over here to do their James Mason impression anytime soon. Well, but... So I, I have a feeling I know which quote for you it would be, but uh, I guess for me... Um, yeah, I probably have to give it the same. You know, it's it's that last monologue, just because it kind of traces the entire path of, and it's it's almost a summation line in the auction house having to do with one of my, or, you know, the, the best scene for me. Um, finally, most indelible moment. Uh, I already kind of uh, said this, but, um, you know, you kind of got around back to... Um, I mean, the crop, the crop duster scene, him being chased in the middle of an uh, abandoned cornfield or off the road and all of that as, you know, a huge set piece. Uh, it, by far, is the most memorable scene for uh, movie buffs. Well, and that's what Hitchcock loved more than anything, was to take a, a scene or a situation that's just common every day. How many times do you drive in the rural areas and you're in the middle of nowhere, and then you see a crop dusting point. And he took this this rather benign situation and turned it into a nemesing scene of murder. So, all right. 
Um, I I think that that has to win it for me. Do you have any argument with that being the most indelible moment? No. Okay. So the this doesn't make sense to me award. Um, you know, the crap duster having a mounted gun, the most or the constantly ridiculous and almost uh, over the top sequences of trying to kill him in a spy movie where they should just shoot him and be done with it. Um, those, those for me are by far the top of the list, and I know we've kind of gotten onto that already, but uh, anything that, you know, you would nominate for the This Just Doesn't Make Sense award. Okay, well, <clears throat> the fact that Van Damme has a house that's on top of Mount Rushmore. Yeah. I mean, that makes absolutely no sense because that's all controlled by the government. I mean, you can't just go up there. Well, I mean, they do give a little bit of exposition where they're like, oh, I guess we're on top of the monument. (laughs) I mean, that is part of the movie, and it's it's written in there in such a way, but... Yeah, well, I have a hard time believing that. All right. And uh, I I guess... All right, so we'll we'll put that on uh, as far as that... Um, the last piece, or the last kind of two pieces, you know, should this have won Best Picture during the year? Just for the uh, notable sake, this was 1959. The five movies that were up for uh, Best Picture that year were Ben-Hur, Anatomy of a Murder, The Diary of Anne Frank, Room at the Top, The Nun's Story. Um, I'm unfamiliar with either of the last two films. Uh, Nun's story was Fred Zinneman, and Room at the Top was Jack Clayton. But, to be fair, you know, the other three films were some pretty big heavy hitter directors at the time. Uh, William Wyler won for Best Director for Ben-Hur, um, George Stevens did Diary of Anne Frank, and Billy Wilder was nominated for uh, Some Like It Hot that year that also was not nominated for Best Picture and has appeared as uh, yeah. some of the be- or one of the best comedies of all time in its own legacy. Didn't Otto Preminger do uh, Anatomy of a Murder? He did. Okay, and he didn't He get was nominated. not nominated for Best Director for it. Okay. <clears throat> but, you know, some of these... And you look at some of these 50s and 60s films where you get these years where it's just some of the biggest names in acting and, it, like, all five of them are career like greats you know you'll get these years where um you have all five of them are academy award winners at some point in their career and you're just like holy cow well i mean it it gets to the point where you have so many giants it's kind of like watching an nba team everybody looks about the same height until you stand next to them and that's the problem in the 50s. You, when, you, when you're putting Billy Wilder, Otto Preminger, um, Hitchcock, Wilder, Billy Wilder, and George Stevens all together. Yeah. I mean, you know, how, do you, how do you differentiate who's the dire- best director? Well, and for that matter, John Ford was seemingly up for best director just about every year in the 40s and 50s. Yeah. So, um, I don't know if it should have won best uh, picture that year. Um I certainly don't have an argument uh, against it potentially have, having won or at least been a nomination just because those last two. Um, but the fact that Some Like It Hot and this did not get on the uh, Best Picture nomination list in hindsight seems a little weird. Yeah, well, but you have to understand that 
um, the, the book Ben-Hur had been a uh, hugely popular uh, novel published by a former Civil War general. And they had been able to try to get it into a silent film. But they'd been trying to do this film forever because of just of the episodic nature of it with the chariot races and all this. Just the fact that they were able to get it filmed and get it to look realistic in and of itself was the basis for the for the best picture film. And I have no problem with that film getting it over this one. From the production value and what it was at the time that it was made, I guess I can get it. I don't personally think much of Ben Hur in you know in modern sense, um, just because you know it, had I watched it at the time, maybe it would have been a pinnacle of what film was achieving at that time. But the story to me is just kind of ludicrous, um, and seems like a Forrest Gump version of uh, the Israelites. Well, but, but, I mean, it, the, the like I said, Lou Wallace who had been a Civil War general. He had written this film. <laughs> he had been on staff with of or General Grant, etc. He was a well-known Civil War. It was a hugely popular novel. He had won, you know. Again. So this has been going around. So that's why, you know, and it's still, from what I understand, I've never read the novel, but my understanding is, is it's fairly closely aligned with the book itself. Sure, but Ben-Hur wins mostly for its production value and having the biggest set pieces at that time. I mean, it was a huge production to be able to do that. I mean, the chariot race scenes alone. But, you know, this isn't the podcast for Ben-Hur. So, but just as a, a representation of what I meant by some of the heavy hitters from the 50s, just looking over once at the best actress category that year, um, you had Elizabeth Taylor up for Suddenly Last Summer. You had Katherine Hepburn up for the same movie. You had Audrey Hepburn up for The Nun Story. You had Doris Day nominated for Pillow Talk. And they all lost to uh, Simone Signorette for Room at the Top. I mean, she's the only one of those that I have no idea who she is. But just as much of a stacked category as you could possibly have that year. Yeah. And, and that's on the actor side. Uh during that period, you you would commonly have James Stewart, um, Cary Grant, Burt Lancaster, uh, Jack Lemmon. Um, you know, Charlton Heston would be in there con or constantly. Henry Fonda. Um, yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I certainly have no no issue with um, any of that as far as that goes. I again, you know, I think there are a couple of pictures you could have gone with for best picture that year. Um, I still would have put it on, um, cause I think highly of anatomy of a murder, um, and the diary of Anne Frank is still a classic film. Um, so, you know, the, I have no, no real issue with some of that. Yeah. Um, it's just a matter of some nitpicking here and there. Um, any last thoughts on the film, um, before we kind of close up here? No, not really. I just, it's one of my favorites and, uh. Just something in my personal library that I always enjoy watching. Um, I guess I only have a couple of... There was a, a small um, drop of uh, uh, classic cinema in this one that I always notice, but I don't know if anybody else does. When Cary Grant's allegedly in the shower and he's whistling, 
he's whistling Singing in the Rain, which was only uh, about uh, five to seven years before this. So just, you know, a little bit of a note drop of um, Hollywood kind of commenting on itself a little bit. Uh, the other thing, Harry Grant must have had a lot of practice being a drunk because he was incredibly convincing, <laughs> um, as far as I'm concerned. So um, I guess that's it as far as I have it uh, for this week. Um, so uh, next week we're going to be covering Rocky. Um, we'll try and get that one up as... Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Let, let's not try and deadpan it too much. I mean... I still think it has um, some reasonability to go with it. But uh, that's going to do it uh, for us at the moment. Um, and... I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. After all, tomorrow is another day. As always, please subscribe, rate, and comment on the show from wherever you get your podcasts. It will help everyone else find the show and share in the fun. If you would like to suggest a movie we should review or potentially guest star on one of the episodes, please follow either Dana or I on Twitter uh, at TJ3Duncan or at Dana W. Duncan. Uh, 